Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by GreatGardenPlants.com. I'm Leslie Harris, and I have to apologize for the last episode. Decent piece of self-indulgence, wasn't it? I was feeling a little sad for myself with no good reason at all in terms of gardening. As my friend Julie Hart from Launceston, Tasmania, said to me on Instagram, you've been there five minutes. Um, She didn't say it like that because she typed it in and she probably didn't have that much of an attitude and she had a better Australian accent, but she has a really good point. I mean, it was five weeks at that time and some other stuff was happening outside the garden that kept me from getting into the garden. Some of you who follow me on Instagram know about Ginny, the beautiful English Springer Spaniel. She's helped me do so many Tuesday tips over the years and she was such a pretty dog. My uh, my sister called her the Brett girl. Well, she turned 14 in August and her quality of life was now quite poor. And so she is springing in the beautiful big garden in heaven. And, you know, saying goodbye to a pet is always so hard, but you have to think about how much they're suffering. And with all the gifts that they give you, they don't have the language gift. And you you have to realize that it's the right thing to do. So there was the move. There was Ginny. There was my amazing 98-year-old mother-in-law whose health issues required several unscheduled trips, mostly Jeff, once both of us, to South Carolina within, I think it was three within four weeks. So if a 98-year-old person has a fall, you would then think that she would start to decline like a great empire, the reasons for the deterioration so multitudinous, so commingled that it challenges every history student to sum up the situation in a midterm exam. But this one, my mother-in-law, nope. The fall did precipitate some health issues and she had an unpleasant September, but now it's October. And with the addition of care coming into her home, she is back to being driven to the market, out to dinner, having friends over for canasta. I mean, the only real change besides the help is that she adjusted her country club membership to include only nine rounds of golf per year. (laughs) I mean, can you believe it? The woman is a bloody legend. As for our horrible September, well, it's over too. And hope springs eternal that Jeff has inherited all of his mother's endurance and regenerative genes. I've had a chance to make progress with this little garden now, and I'll talk about it after the interview. Today, it's with Kathy Jentz, a garden speaker, author, and podcaster who has written a book on ground covers. Hey, last episode, I asked about the plant of the week thing that I used to do and whether I should bring that feature back. And overwhelmingly, The answer was yes. I mean, that is to say that one person told me that I should, but that person was Erin Shannon, and she's the impatient gardener, and if she wants to hear about a plan of the week, I'm down with that. I was such a bad girl for that episode. I think I asked all of you wonderful listeners, go to my website and tell me if you want the plan of the week thing, Uh, and then I proceeded not even to write a blog post for that episode. So pathetic. So I'm going to start that up in the future both actually writing blog posts again and plant of the week, at least intermittently. I know you are the impatient gardener, Erin, but just wait for it. So instead of writing a blog post, I didn't just fritter away my time. I did a really bang up job of getting ready for a presentation that I gave in Western North Carolina. It was a master gardener symposium with a bunch of those groups together. And the talk came off really well. Everybody laughed at all the right places and, you know, with me and not at me, which is always a win. So it was perhaps good that I put my energy there because in terms of the advantage of impacting a greater number of people, there were almost certainly more people in that room than there are who read my blog. So I think that my priority was correct in this case. 
there were some really good speakers at this event. I mean, I did fine, but there was my friend Linda Vodder of Potache Blog and a new friend named Heather Andrews who spoke beautifully on pollinator gardens. Her website is Garden Thoughtfully, and she does consultations even remotely. She really knows a lot. I would put a link in the blog, but let me just not assume that I'm going to write that blog. So anyway, if you were to Google Heather Andrews Garden Thoughtfully, you would find her. And the other speakers were this lovely young couple named Brandon Basham and Jill Jacobs, and they spoke about bees. They were both so articulate and knowledgeable and really passionate about it. Brannon did the actual talk, but both Jill and Brannon participated in the panel discussion that we had at the end. It was fun. We had some really great questions from the audience of the Western North Carolina Master Gardeners. Brannon and Jill had written a children's book on the mason bee, so I picked up a couple of those for my families of grandchildren. If you're looking for speakers for your next event, they were both really good. Linda was so inspirational. And hey, you know, I love a microphone. So think of people like that to come to talk to your gardening crowd because everybody was very inspirational. And part of what made it so good, I think, is that the speakers fed off of a really knowledgeable crowd. It was really, they were great. It was fun to talk to them. When I speak at gatherings, a lot of my content is what I've learned from smarter people, my podcast guests. And of course, I always include Doug Tallamy in any talk I give. And it just kind of hit home to me as I was preparing the basic information for this audience, you know, that 70% native biomass that it would be great to have on our properties. Well, Jeff and I achieved that as soon as we moved into the house of our old garden here in Charlottesville because of huge tulip poplars and oaks. And where I live now, yeah, it's not even close. I have one tree that's taller than me and it's a great myrtle, which by the way, is a good adaptive pollinator, but it's certainly not native. The others are weeping Japanese maples, and then there are some azaleas from Asia and even some barberry. They are meeting their maker little by little, hopefully without anybody noticing. There is a six-foot-tall weeping redbud that's kind of adorable, except for the way that it has been pruned or maybe hasn't been pruned. So we have that going for us, and it's going to look better next spring. And then there's a mature oak leaf hydrangea. So I've got a little bit of something but I am going to have to work so hard to get up my percentages of native plants. And of course, because the plants that I brought here from my old garden last month, you know, those were the super cool plants or the sentimental favorites that somebody had given me. There were very few natives that made the travel team. I figured I could just get those later. Later could mean now here in mid-October, but I think more realistically, it means in a few weeks when I will haunt the aisles of nurseries who wish to reduce their inventories for winter. And we should all help them, right? A shopping opportunity. Remember that in fall, when you're shopping for most perennials, at least, you're actually buying a root system and not a thing of beauty. Don't be afraid to slide the pot away and have a look at where your dollars, hopefully a significantly reduced percentage of your dollars, are going. And what you want to see is that happy medium between root bound, a really strong root system that's twisted itself around itself, and anchorless. You need, you need a nice clump of roots that can spread in your still warm soil. Even though your air temperatures are going down, your soil is still a little bit warmer. And that is why, as the advertising campaign says, fall is for planting. Listening to my fellow speakers at the Western North Carolina Symposium inspired me a lot to lift my native game, and I see a way to do it without having to apply for a new bed or make a big change here in my HOA. It would involve the subtle, gradual, and uh, surreptitious pruning of what's here and gradually adding in what's better. 
The two plants that I want to start with because I'm really missing them this fall. I had recently established this combination in a bed in my old garden. They are the Solidago Goldenrod and the New England Aster. And exactly what types, because there are lots of different types of these two types of plants. Well, I need to find that Venn diagram subset of good for pollinators, of course, pretty, of course, and not too tall or messy because I don't want the neighbors to talk. Richard Hockey of the Chicago Botanic Gardens did a trial with Solidago. By the way, Richard's been on the podcast and that was a really good episode. It was really cool to hear about what plant trials are and how they work. He's a good speaker too. Anyway, the Golden Fleece Solidago did really well and it seems to work with my needs. It's small and cute. It's a Mount Cuba introduction. Do you know Mount Cuba? That's the amazing native garden in Wilmington, Delaware. And as for the aster, well, happily, Mount Cuba Center has done an entire trial on that species. When Chicago Botanic Garden does their trials, they don't concentrate as much on pollinator action, but the Mount Cuba Center really does. It's like, is this nativar or cultivar or species the best for the bugs? Anyway, what I'm going to concentrate on is their very highly rated October Skies Aster, which I did grow at my old garden and which just is a little less sprawling than some of the others, like Radon's favorite. I just want the more compact ones in this garden. So if I get these two plants and I tuck them in amongst low-growing azaleas, I mean, they're just going to be cute little puffs of yellow and purple reaching out between low green blobs. I can't see how that would offend anybody. And let me just disclose here, if you haven't already gathered it, that I'm not overly fond of paperwork and I really don't want to go to the HOA for a formal permission thing. So I'm scheming ways to just, you know, stay within the rules. The rules say that you can plant similar plants in an already existing bed. I don't want to make a grand plan that involves an application and a drawing, and I don't actually want to go outside of the bounds of the beds that are actually there because I'm trying to simplify my gardening life. And I'm getting really lazy in my old age. It's it's kind of fun that way. Okay, I need to tell you that I visited my old garden this past week. I do want to tell you about that, and I will, after my interview with Kathy Jentz, which is coming up about her book on ground covers. Hey, welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie, and I'm here with Kathy Jentz, who has written several books, but her latest one is what we're going to talk about today. It has a short title, Ground Cover Revolution, but it also has one of those other titles that goes on and on, but it's cool, so I'm going to read it. How to use sustainable low water ground covers to replace your turf, no mowing, no fertilizing, no pesticides, no problem. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Leslie. Good to see you again. Nice to see you too. And and, and you all, Kathy's been on the podcast before and just a reminder of what else she does. She does a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, One of the things is editor of the Washington Gardener Magazine. And another one is that she does a gardening podcast, a good one, and it's called Garden DC. So, so what are your latest ventures? And then we'll get into your book. What have you been up to? So aside from pushing the book, <laughs> talking about ground covers everywhere, I had started Seed Swap Day several years ago for my national seed exchanges that I run. Um, so we're looking at a reduce your turf grass type day hmm. and looking for partners for that. So that's like kind of coming out, going to be rolled out maybe this fall. So I'm excited about that. That sounds cool. So obviously a lot of things revolving around this, this book and, and making sure, you know, we love to get the word out about gardening, but we also like to feed ourselves. So got to sell that book. Um, what was your inspiration for this particular topic? 
Well, long story short, I moved from a condo to a small house uh, because at the condo, I was getting my hand slapped by the condo association for gardening into the common area, as it's called. (laughs) And then I said, I need a bigger place to garden. But then I bought a place that's on a very exposed corner that was all turf grass on one side from sidewalk to foundation and then all shade with English ivy on the other. Oh, not a great ecological scene. (laughs) Exactly. And I quickly learned I wasn't a fan of mowing or maintaining this huge, sunny, exposed lawn area. So I started to collect ground covers and plop them in amongst the English ivy to see what would fight against the English ivy. And then also I was just taking sections of the turf grass at a time, doing, you know, one whole swath if I could or one whole area making beds and putting in the ground covers but Leslie I wasn't calling them ground covers then I was going to plant swaps and things and if a catalog or a person told me this is an aggressive spreader this will take over your garden I was like yes that's the plan (laughs) (laughs) isn't that funny some people like to avoid that but now are you sorry are you sorry that you did all that there's a couple that I'm like oh those are not ones I should have done that I'm you know you're constantly editing and gardening, right? You're at that phase. Once you've filled in everything, then you're starting to edit. But yeah, there's better behaved ground covers and then there's rampant ground covers. Yeah. So what, what were the ones where you like, oh, that was a bad idea? <laughs> well, first uh, native plant that I was like, ooh, I should not have put that ever in. Obedient plant. <laughs> that is not obedient at all as far as its growing habit. So the physostegia, the, the perennial flower, huh? I didn't realize that it spread that much. I was in a couple of gardens that I worked before I sold my business. We were trying to encourage it. So it must have really liked your place. It's similar to mint. Like it has that reputation. Imagine, you know, plopping mint in the middle of a perennial bed. What's going to happen there? A mint bed. A mint bed. Another one, which is non-native to our area, is I saw a purple vinca, purple flowered little vinca um, ground cover vine in somebody's garden and I transplanted a tiny piece of that. And now it's, you know, it's huge. It's taking over. Oh. Um, constantly battling that to not take over my hostas and, and other perennial garden. So it's the vine like Vinca Minor? Yes, but it was like a, a purple color, almost like a deep purple versus the pale we normally see everywhere. Yeah. So that's why I thought, oh, this one will be better behaved. Wrong. Oh dear. <laughs> Oh, well, you got to try these things. That's what gardening mm-hmm. is, is uh, making mistakes. Have you eradicated both of those or are you just checking them all the time? The opinion plant, I've got that totally in check. The vinca vine, no. that. But it's, I've let it take over an area where pretty much nothing else will grow. And that's one of the things I, concepts I talk about in the book is right plant, right place, of course. But if turf grass isn't going to grow there, if nothing else will grow there, maybe put in one of the more aggressive spreader type ground covers that would take over. Yeah. So back to the inspiration, you had a big lawn. You don't have like, I don't know, you're not hosting kickball games. You, you're, you know, there are, there are reasons and times to have a big lawn, but it is interesting to see so many households grow out of those times where you know, nobody's playing softball out here. Nobody's having a catch and, and we're still mowing the lawn. It, it is sad to think that although it's, neat and it's traditional people think it's easy just because they don't have to think but it's really not easy is it i mean there's a lot to do to keep a turf grass lawn looking good wouldn't you say 
Oh yeah, it. I would say it's the highest maintenance part of a landscape, even though people think of it as low maintenance because you're touching it probably weekly, if not more in this part of the mid-Atlantic. Uh, if we had steady rains, you would be mowing twice a week. Yeah. There's part of the season where it's twice a week, not just once a week. And then when we're not having steady rains, you're watering it. And <laughs> so that's intensive right there. But there are other garden where I'm not touching the plants but maybe once a year they're getting a once a year cut back and that's it maybe some supplemental water so I feel like the easiest way to garden is and and to have flowers I mean you can garden all kinds of ways you can just have trees I guess if you want easy flower beds with flowers I I feel like flowering shrubs are just so easy it's like that once a year thing maybe twice a year and pull some weeds you know dump some mulch on it or leave its own leaves as mulch and fewer weeds will come and, and the soil will be, you know, kept moist in there. But ground covers are handier if you want things to be low. So, so I sort of accidentally backed into the subject of like, what's the easiest way to garden? Ground covers are what your book is about, but like how, like how tall do your ground covers get? Was there a cutoff? Like, well, it can't be over 12 inches tall. Yeah, so there's a, a bit debate in the ground cover world, I guess you would say, of what is a ground cover. Anything that thickly covers the ground that would suppress weeds, in my definition. So that let some of the taller plants be in. So we have some small shrubs, like ground cover roses can be between two feet-ish. A lot of the ground cover roses are in that realm. Um, I include winter jasmine, which can kind of send out a wand a little bit taller than that, depending on, you know, for covering a hillside. So you can get taller ones. Solomon seal is another one. And some ferns that I include are a little on the taller side. So those are the less steppable. So that would be ground covers that are more filled in just for spaces that you're not going to be walking in too much. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, or like on a hill or a slope that you're not going to be climbing too much, you can go for the taller side of ground covers. I mean, yeah, I guess depending on who's defining it, any, if you're covering the ground, it could be trees, right? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. There are spreading trees that do that. And vines is another big category. You know, the, the spreading vines on the ground, which Vinca and English Ivy, of course, are. But so people don't think of those other vines as traditional ground covers, but they can be. Yeah. When I moved into this place that I'm about to move out of, it was ivy everywhere, almost all English, but a good bit of poison. And it was, I thought, oh, I'll just cut it away and start to make garden beds, you know, in the sunny spots. Here I go. I'll go a little bit at a time. And it wasn't just like a layer of ivy that's two or three inches tall. It was like 18 inches tall because it was vine on vine on vine on vine. It was amazing how prolific. Now, um, ivy is something that I kind of hate, although I love a bit of variegated dringling out of a pot. I've obviously got baggage from my experiences with, with it. Even all those years gardening up in Connecticut, I was constantly having friendly chats with my neighbor about how it just takes me like several hours, several times a month to deal with your ivy on my side of the fence. Mm -hmm. But what were you thinking in terms of maintenance? Did you divide up the book to talk about what should go where, right plant, right place? I'm sure you did. Well, I just that in the profiles for each of the ground covers, whether they were a higher or lower maintenance. Um, so we have a rating system and then charts that you can go down the chart and you can say, I want a low growing, something with a wildlife benefit and drought tolerant, or 
I'm looking for deer resistant and full sun. So you would look at those attributes. But yeah, most of them we picked because they are low maintenance. Since I was limited to 40 or so profiles and there are thousands of possible ground covers, I tried to pick the ones that were not going to cost you, you know, weekly, daily English ivy maintenance type maintenance and or were also available to a great amount of the readership that, you know, most countries, most garden centers would carry these. And speaking of the readership, it's it's hard to, we're going to talk about native plants, but it's hard to really get into that because this book is aimed at the entire world, right? Correct. It's published internationally. So we have country of origin mm-hmm. and in the descriptions and the profiles, I would point out this is a U.S. native. Sometimes one plant will have many different versions like ferns. Ferns are on pretty much every continent, mm-hmm. but you can find your fern or you can use the imported or exotic ferns to your country. The other thing that changes in the book because it's international is we're not saying USDA plant zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say the actual temperature range. Oh. It's like if you're in Australia, South Africa, you're not like, I'm zone seven. <laughs> so <laughs> it's actual what the coldest and, and hottest it could be. How did you go through the process of narrowing it down to 40 plants? That was a tough one, Leslie, because we all have our favorites, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think when I started, I had personally grown and researched maybe 75. And then so I could winnow it really down from those. And I could say this one has much more application worldwide. And there was probably I got it down to 45. It was those last five that I was like, oh, I wish I could include this one. But, you know, there could always be a second edition. Yeah, there you go. Can you think of any of the ones that almost made the cut but didn't? Yeah, I was thinking of, and I'm just blanking on the name of it. Oh, I never do that. That never happens to me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's more of a moisture loving one. And it's just going to come to me, of course, after we finish this recording. Yes, of course. But I have while you're brewing on that, because it will pop into your head. Oh, here it is. Mazis Repons. Oh, yeah. So that's that really low one. And it has little white or blue flowers. Yeah, and it has those cute little white or blue flowers that just pop up in spring. So Mazas is tough because it needs moisture. If it dries, then it's not really coming back. And there are others that are much better drought tolerant. So I was trying to side more to the drought tolerant, although I include some some moisture loving ones as well. Okay. I know you have a chapter on how to grow them. And of course, it's different for each one, although maybe they're some lumped together. Do you address the idea of plants being able to really cohabitate because of the depth of their roots. For example, you were talking about that vinca minor earlier, and those roots go down a little deeper than I would like when I'm trying to weed it, but they don't go down very, very far. So things can kind of happily be neighbors, right? Did you address that? Yeah, definitely. So we talk about matrix and layer gardening and the fact that the ground cover layer, a lot of them are shallow rooted, like Mazis, Ajuga, like Binka, if you wanted to do Binka. So they can be perfectly in sync with a shrub or around a a tree, and they're not going to compete with the tree roots or the the shrub roots. And they're also easier to maintain when they're shallow rooted. So pretty much easier to dig out than some of the deeper ones. I also talk about layering with bulbs. That's one of my favorite things to do is ground cover with a bulb layer underneath. Yeah. Because they're good partners with each other. Like as the bulb comes up, that's the ground cover. If it's a, you know, evergreen, 
it's going to be up, but you're probably going to give it a little bit of a haircut by that point in late winter, right? And then the bulb foliage starts to die back as the ground cover is filling in. That's such a great idea. And it, and it makes it so that you really don't have to worry about, you know, looking at the insightly brown stuff that you feel like you need to keep or that's what we are taught. Although apparently there's research and I talked about this on the podcast, when you let bulb foliage ripen, you certainly don't have to let it get brown, brown, brown. When it starts to go brown, it's okay to take it away. It's done photosynthesizing. But that's another subject. Uh, <laughs> we could go on and on on that. Tell me, can you name a couple of the, the ones that would be, I don't know, most universally easy for almost any occasion, let's call it semi-shade, semi-sun, so not full-on blasting sun, not deep, deep shade, and decent moisture, but not a bog and not a desert. Can you name a, can you name a few that you're like, oh, this, that, and the other? So our sedums, our ground cover sedums, so as opposed to those tall flowering sedums like Autumn Joy. So there's lots of adaptable ground cover sedums. There's Native American low-growing sedums, the sedum ternatum in our area, and Surprisingly, they can take shade. I have a lot of them that run under shrubs or under herbaceous borders. Only thing is, if they don't get full, full sun, they don't get that flowering. Right. And if you really like that really, you know, brilliant yellow or white flowers, and they only last for a week or two, the flowering on them, but really easy, set it and forget, easy to propagate, very shallow rooted, which we just talked about. So that's a great one. And then... I'm a huge fan of hellebores as a ground cover. And so ground, they're like tough as nails, right? They might not be able to be in full beating down sun unless they had extra moisture, but they're so adaptable from part sun to almost full shade, still blooming for you, still putting up with a, a ton of abuse, as we say. And there's one thing, I, a concept I talk about in the book that I added is called leaf swallowing. So when you're putting it under a layer of shrubs or trees and they're deciduous and they drop their leaves in the fall, the hellebores do a really good job of hiding that leaf litter under their foliage and kind of consuming it and letting it decay underneath there. So if you want super, super low maintenance, you know, some of the leaf swallowing type of ground covers are great because they're taking care of that for you. Like they're almost like mulching in place is what I would call it. And they love that type of acid that's uh, that the, the leaves are bringing to the soil. I found that out by accident on a property that I lived on many years ago before I was really a gardener. I was just fiddling around and I didn't have time to get rid of the leaves that I sort of piled up on a bunch of Asian pachysandra. And by the time I got around to it, I was like, but where did it go? And that pachysandra <laughs> was so happy the next spring. So for years after that, I just took the leaves over to the pachysandra. Now it's so different for me because I take those leaves all over the garden. But pachysandra, if you want to hide them, that's a good hider also. Yeah. Uh, do you deal with any ground covers? We've, we've talked about a bunch that are evergreen. Do you deal with ones that are not? Yeah, there's a few that are deciduous. And then, of course, there are some ground covers that are both. So I referred to ferns earlier and there's deciduous ferns and there's evergreen ferns. So same thing with some of the more grass-like ones. Those, are, those tend to be more of the evergreen type, the sedges, where they just need a little bit of a haircut because they're kind of looking sad at the end of winter, but they don't really need it. It's just for us aesthetically. And then some of the deciduous ones are usually they're the Native American ones that I like, like green and gold. 
um, kind of dies back in the wintertime and then pops out again in the spring. Is that the chrysogonum? Yeah, chrysogonum virginiana. Mm -hmm. That's a really nice one. And that one, you know, that could be in a woodland garden where either you're getting a layer of snow in the wintertime and then who cares whether it's evergreen or not because you're not even going to see it anyway or those couple of months you're not even outside to enjoy it so yeah as long as those good root system is under there and you know it's going to reemerge, then those are great yeah as you were researching the book did you learn anything that surprised you yeah i learned a few that we had thought of as like horribly invasive plants actually have a native version and one of the lily of the valley oh. so i was doing research on lily valley i recommend lily of the valley as one of those if nothing else can grow here and I mean, under your deck, under the eaves of the house, like a shed where nothing else is getting to, you're not going to water it, you're not going to do anything else. That's where you can put your little patch of Lily of the Valley. So there is an Appalachian version of Lily of the Valley that's a little taller and narrower. Oh. Not as fast spreading. It's a little bit slow. So I'm always warning people that just because, you know, you think Lily Valley is invasive, if you go in the woods and you're walking in the woods and you see this little patch of Lily Valley, don't go crazy trying to pull it out and think that it's not native because you don't know without that idea on that plant. Is it that close in resemblance to the one that we, wow. So do you grow it? I tried to source some. It's very hard to buy. Huh. That would be so cool. Like, unless you had them side by side, it's hard to tell. Does it still have the same bell-like flower and the amazing scent? Yep. But not as floriferous because they're more in the, sh in the shade-loving side. Okay. A little bit fewer flowers on them, but still nice and held above the foliage, which is great. And I collect some of the more rare Lily of the Valleys. The pink form is not, not as common as the white the variegated leaf lily of the valley, that's a slower spreader. So that mm -hmm. again, you want lily of the valley, you want those great scented flowers and you want those, you can pick some of the cultivars that are more slow spreading. Yeah. Um, there is a native to the United States, Pachysandra. I, I make out like I'm a huge Pachysandra fan. I was back when it was serving me in a place up in my Connecticut garden. I had a little patch here that I immediately ripped out, but I did get some of the native Pachysandra to try in two or three spots in this yard and it's been six or seven years and there's like doubled so that means I had three and I have six now not impressive what do you what do you know about that plant yeah so I do feature that in the book with that giant caveat so I had I have ratings for slow to fast spreading so if you want a face that's filled in fast and you want to beat back those weeds or not ever have to maintain this area, go for the fast spreaders. So the slow spreader is definitely our native Pachysandra. And when I give talks about ground covers, I always say, buy more. <laughs> <laughs> not just three plugs, buy a tray of plugs. And then even then, it's probably going to be five to seven years before you would have like a three foot by three foot thick area, like a thick enough area. But once it does fill in, it has that great leaf swallowing that we talked about earlier. It's beautiful. It has this beautiful like dustiness to the leaves. Yes. Unlike the Asian one, which is a little bit shiny. Yeah. Yeah. That's more like the shiny green gloss. And it does have flowers and it is semi-deciduous. Depending on your area, it will die back a little in the wintertime and then reemerge again. But yeah, 
I always warn people that this is one of the slowest spreaders and it will break your heart because you'll be like, yay, get that to fill in. And then it just is like mm, a snail's pace. Yeah. It's, it's not just slow. It's, it's glacial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about lawns for a little bit. I don't know why, but it certainly is more normally in my understanding that the male of our species is in love with lawn. In my husband's case, it has to do with golf and just thinking that this is the way it should be. But what if you love lawn or you're married to somebody or living with somebody who does? Tell me about the lawn thing and, and how to get through this. Yeah, it's so culturally significant for some people and it is tied to manhood in some aspect, right? They have the pride in their lawn and that's how it's marketed and socialized. So in the book, we're not talking about getting rid of all the lawn. If you love your little bit of lawn, keep a little bit of lawn. You could be a circle of lawn that that could be your croquet lawn, right? Or that could be when your grandkids come that you play catch there. Or if you have a pet that needs the lawn, just try to reduce it as much as possible and think of better plants for those areas. Because there's places where lawn is just never going to thrive, you know, under a black walnut, in deep shade in full burning sun where you get lots of foot traffic, those are not great places for a turf grass lawn unless you want a high maintenance turf grass lawn in those areas. It's, it's interesting to think that, as we pointed out before, people do think that this is the way it looks like you are taking care of your property. And I'm hopeful that that is changing. I know that we started mowing a spiral in our lawn just for fun. So this design in it, just started getting really tall. It wasn't because I was going for a meadow. I was just going for very tall grass. And it brought me so much pleasure. We don't have people kicking a soccer ball in our lawn, so we can go smaller and smaller. Do you try to convince people as to you know why you should change it? Of course you do because you're promoting ground covers, but do you talk about the ecological benefits of other plants besides turf grass? Yeah, so we do go into some of it where, again, I'm not demonizing turf grass. It has its uses, but we talk about how it's much less a uh, burden on the environment. Most ground covers are absorbing much more stormwater. There's plenty of studies showing that. Of course, if you have anything that's blooming, that actually will have some pollinator benefit. Most turf grass is not going to have any pollinator benefit and very little wildlife benefit in general. So a lot of the ground covers you talk about in the book have benefits for birds and other creatures as well. And some of them are even edible for you. And I do talk about, you know, if you're in an HOA or you're in a place that lawn is the societally acceptable way to have your front of your house, at least. Then I talk about some of the ground covers that look lawn-like or behave like lawn. So you can use, again, some of the low-growing sedums and sedges in those places. I love the Japanese Mondo grasses. Oh, yeah. The dwarf one? Yeah. So cool. Like if you're in a townhouse or row house and you just need to fill in some plugs for that to show, and then you're not having to mow those. They're just maybe, again, the once you're trimmed back if they get some ratty edges to them. Most of the time they look fantastic. I started a little patch because an early client in my business wanted to get rid of some. I'm like, well, I'll take that. And so I've been dividing it ever since. And I have, I, it lines a huge stairway in the back of my garden and it goes around and sometimes on top of the stepping stones. Mm -hmm. So I take little chunks off and I add it to another place. I, I just think it's the coolest plant. And it has this incongruous blue berry in winter after it flowers. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. So again, a slight wildlife benefit with that berry and stuff. So it, that gives you a little bit of the extra because you get 
sometimes a short little flower wand there. And then the plant that people can confuse it with, liriope, both will be called monkey grass. So there's clumping liriope and spreading liriope. And you definitely want to go for the clumping kind if you're not going to be able to control that spreading one. And that one has beautiful flower wands, like almost like salvia in the late summer, early fall. Yeah, it's like a skinny leaf hosta. It's very nice. Do you know which one self-sows more prolifically? Because every year, although I grow no liriope, mm-hmm. actually, that's not true. I grow a tiny bit in deep shade. It never flowers. Uh, it's such deep shade. So somebody in my neighborhood is growing liriope because I'm pulling up liriope weeds every once in a while. And do you know which one might be giving me those little offshoots? It sounds like it's the spreading variety. Mm-hmm. So that one is the one that either is coming back from roots that are probably three feet down there. That was like, oh, owner before the owner. Again, with that spreading one, it's like underground stolons that if you don't get every little tiny piece out, it's going to come back. I bet that's what it is that because it's always in the same spot. I'm like, I thought I told you. (laughs) That's so funny. And so what are some other ones um, that look like grass? Do you recommend any of the sedges or carexes or anything like that? Yeah, I'm a big fan of of Carex. We have, again, a whole wardrobe of native and Asian and European and all these new hybrids coming on the market. And more native Carex for our area are becoming available that weren't being sold before through garden centers. Now we have the Carex Pennsylvanica, the Pennsylvania sedge that is super thin leaf, beautiful. I love that on a slope. And when the wind comes through it, it looks like that amber waves of grain. It's so pretty. Yeah. So pretty. And then there's like the wood sedge, which is super tough. No mo. Don't have to do anything to it. Looks just like a lawn once you get it established. And that's like a darker green, but thicker blade. That one's a little bit harder to get a hold of. I think in two or three years, that will be all over the marketplace. Cool. Because this place that I'm moving into has the tiniest little lawn. And it's so strange that we will not I will not be mowing the lawn again. Jeff and I kind of fight over it now. And after we move, no more because the HOA people will come buzzing through. But wouldn't it be fun if I got permission to have none of that and therefore they wouldn't be buzzing right through my yard? And I think that that is a good point of my book is that people have been telling me they've been taking it to their HOAs and showing them the photos. So it's like, can I have permission to do this instead of a lawn out front? Because I think what usually the HOA rules are, they just want you to maintain it and look neat, you know, look like it's occupied, basically, (laughs) not like, yeah. and when you say, I want to convert it to a native meadow, or I want a tapestry lawn of different sedums, then they have this idea that their heads are popping off because they're like, oh, what what craziness is this going to be? But I think to show them some of the realistic photos of actual gardens and how people have done it, you know, helps to win them over an argument. Then you can say, it's going to look like this. It's going to take three or four years to establish. And here's what I have in mind. That's such a great idea. I have a lot of unpacking to do before I can put my head around that one, but it's a really good idea. Tell me about, did you include strawberries in the book? Yeah, so I wanted to include a couple edibles, of course, the edibles for us and for creatures, right? If you get the strawberries before the birds and the mice and others do. <laughs> so there are cultivars that are used particularly for ground covers. So pink panda is one. And that's a beautiful, almost reddish leaf 
to that strawberry and it has a huge dark pink, almost cherry pink flower to it instead of the white strawberry flower. And it makes produces edible strawberries on it too, which is another side benefit of it. But that is actually bred and sold as a ground cover edible strawberry. And then we have our Native American strawberries, the like Virginica or Virginiana, and that people are probably familiar with strawberries trying to creep into their lawn and fighting them off and stuff. Instead of fighting it, I always say, why not let it win in that section? If you're constantly fighting it and you have a very thin lawn at that point, then there might be a reason why that's trying to establish itself. Do you talk about moss in the book? Mm, Oh, yes. Moss is one of my personal favorite ground covers. And there's a lady named Moss and Annie in uh, North Carolina. And so she's written the book on mosses. And she talks about establishing moss lawns. And she calls them gardening with moss rather than moss lawns. But I have a little cultivated expanse of about three by five feet of moss lawn where I just collected little pieces of moss from all over my garden if they were at the bottom of an oak or whatever and just kind of massed them together and just kind of felt my way through a moss lawn. But there's other better ways to establish it because there are mosses that like uh, more sun. There's ones that are more shade and more moisture. There are mosses that grew on grow on rooftops that are exposed on top of skyscrapers. Can you imagine? Your, if you can put up with that situation, you can grow anywhere. Yeah. And then there are mosses that are more clumping versus spreading. So okay. if you have more of the clumpers, the cushion types, that will take longer to fill in. So that was kind of my mistake. I was collecting a bunch of little cushions and trying to push them together, which they will eventually, but that's a slow process versus some of the faster spreading mosses. All right. So we're talking about things that spread quickly, unless you have the patience of a saint. And so what if they get out of your bounds? I mean, it seems to me you could just edit it. You have to, you know, you have to garden, you have to cut your lawn, you have to cut back perennials, you have to deadhead, you have to prune trees, but do people worry about it getting out of bounds? Yeah. So you could do a bi-weekly, monthly, however fast your growing season is type of edging, the English edging, or you could go with your weed whacker and just maintain that edge. So you had a fast spreading one that you thought was going to invade your neighbor's garden or they were complaining to you then it's just a matter of just maintaining that edge. And that could just be the once a week, give it a haircut there. If you really think you have something that might be spreading by that, say that liriope that we talked about, the spreading liriope. The stolen too. Yeah. If you inherited something like that, then you can put those steel bamboo uh, barriers into the ground where it's just basically, you're just stopping it in place. Yeah. With kind of a shield. Don't think though that they can't jump over that because I've seen them jump sidewalk too. Like, wow. Who and others that just like all of a sudden, boop, they're on the other side of the sidewalk. So you will have to check that edge and walk it. And I think that's, it's like such an American thing to be walking our fence edges. <laughs> oh, nothing could be on the other side that's supposed to be over here. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the neighbor might want some of that ground cover, but, you know, it's a conversation. Yes. Do you include Hutonii? Are you familiar with the chameleon plant? Yeah, no, I do not. (laughs) Did not make the cut. Good choice. (laughs) But will not make the next five cuts, but yes. Uh, That is a nasty plant that was imported as a ground cover um, to the United States. And so people who are inheriting it in their landscape are- Very sad. 
it's very strong. sad people yeah <laughs> it's a beautiful leaf and it's called camellia plant for a reason it's low growing great spraying ground cover does a great job of knocking back weeds and but it will take over the world it has ambitions like godzilla <laughs> and if you try to dig it it has a horrible smell yeah the root system is just nasty smelling and it's one of those again that if you don't get every little piece of that root that underground stolen if just a little piece breaks off you still got it it's a zombie zombie plant yeah yeah it will come back for you like english ivy hutonia some of the others that are just way too thug-like if an owner came in after you to your property and didn't know to maintain it all is lost yes Ooh, I have a big patch of Hutonia and it's it's luckily enclosed within six foot walls of what was probably a foundation for a shed. So mm-hmm. it's enclosed by concrete um, and the garage on one side. So, but I should, maybe I should mention to them, you don't want to put this anywhere else in the garden. It's fine just where it is. <laughs> yes, perfect where it is right there. Just keep it right. There. It's a scary plant. Um, and what are some of your favorites that you grow in your garden that bring you the most joy? So I love epimediums mm. and that is great for a lot of the dry shade I have under my big oak trees on that side of my house because I don't have to water them. I don't have to worry about them. They just take care of themselves and they're, they're a great and will take over English ivy. So that was one of my experiments that I was talking is when I was putting in plugs amongst English ivy, I would pull back a patch of English ivy, clear a space, put in a ground cover plug and see if they could duke it out. Yeah. I tried the spreading rye I tried the vinca. They just wove together craziness. And then it was shockingly the epimedium that was able to run over and smother English ivy. So I was like, yes, I oh, love it. I'm you. so excited. If I weren't moving, I would just continue to propagate my epimedium. Yeah. Keep on wow. Talking, of course, about the common ones, the, the rosea and the sulfurium, the yellow and pinks that you can get at most garden centers. There are, of course, just like with hostas and many other plants like daylilies, you can spend several hundred dollars on a collector epimedium, a little baby in a like two inch or four inch pot. That's not the one to use for ground cover. <laughs> no, no, no. Just get the ones that and borrow from a friend because they do. Yeah. I was just pulling some epimedium out of a path two days ago. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll throw this somewhere else where we have a blank spot. So it's, yeah, it's a very easy and wonderful plant. Any other favorites? What's your favorite sun ground cover? For the sunny side, I like, most of the hardy geraniums mm. take a bit more sun. And, and I just established a patch right now where the county came in and dug in and put a new fire hydrant oh. <laughs> and then basically dumped mud on a five foot area in my front garden. So it's just everything that was underneath is on top, right? So I got some plugs of some hardy geraniums and stuck them in and then the drought happened. Oh, very dry May, and they're still doing fine. Oh, good. Really tough, tough, tough plant hardy geraniums are, and they will spread and make a nice thick ground cover over a few years. Beautifully scented leaves, you know, deer proof, and then they have those tiny like shell pink flowers, depending on the variety. It could be like a pale purple or a pale white as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great plant. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. This has been very enlightening, and everybody should think about reducing their lawn unless they need it. Lawns are great. We're not, we're not haters, but probably don't need as much as we have all over America. Pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would say if you're not walking across your lawn, 
that section at least once or twice a week, you don't need it. Like no. it's, there's something much more beautiful and useful that can go in that spot. Yeah. And ground covers are nice and low if you want to maintain a view to something else. But if not, you know, go, go tall, go, go really low maintenance and just throw in a bunch of, I don't know, flowering hydrangeas or something. Oh yeah. But weaving ground covers between, actually, before I let you go, weaving ground covers between shrubs as they get established, is that something you address in the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's definitely the, call it the understory layer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start off with your tree layer, your shrubs, maybe a perennial layer if you're depending on how, the height of your shrubs, if you want to go there, and then the ground cover. That's kind of your finishing. Instead of having to mulch every year, that's a green mulch. Right. So we do talk about having a living plant be the mulch and not having to re-up with wood chips or shredded leaves or whatever you're using for your organic mulch every year. Yeah, that's such a great idea. And in fact, because I'm leaving this garden of nine years and because I did establish that lower layer between tiny little shrubs that I put in. Now, sometimes I'll be standing next to what's a, you know, three by three, four by four shrub. I'm like, what are you doing under there? You cute little hostel, let's move you to a better place. But it was the, it was what I had established as that green mulch that is now disappearing under large shrubs. And that's gardening, right? Yep. There's always more to do. There is. Kathy, thank you so much. So I will put all the links to your socials and your podcast and of course to this book in the show notes for this episode. And thank you so much for coming to chat with me about your great new book. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care, Kathy. Thanks. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? Great Garden Plants is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to your front door. Their website makes the shopping so easy because you can like say, hey, I have this zone and this light and I want this color and maybe deer are going to visit my yard and all this stuff that you can plug in to choose the right plants. And once you're ready to order, they'll let you select your own shipping date. You can schedule ahead for fall planting when you're actually ready to do fall planting. And if you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, well, just stop worrying. They arrive in great condition, but they're guaranteed. And as a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE. So visit greatgardenplants.com, shop with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE, and get into your garden. Kathy Jentz was so informative. She had some great ideas about ground covers. And you can find her book on Amazon. And again, it's called Ground Cover Revolution, because who knows if I'm going to write a blog post with links. That is my goal. I do not know whether I will achieve my goal. Okay, I promised to tell you about my little visit back to my old garden and home this week. I'm not even going to talk about the house because, you know, that's just personal taste. And of course, my furniture's gone and their furniture's in and who cares? It's been a little over a month since I left the garden and it looked really good. I met the two ladies, Susan and Julie, sisters, who will be in charge of the actual gardening. See, the new owner is like not a crazy person like you and me. And so she loves the garden and so does her husband. And they're loving the birds that the garden is bringing, but they're not actually going to have their hands in the dirt all the time. And I totally get that. I mean, I'm the one who ran away from the garden because it was so big and I had my hands in the dirt all the time and I needed to make time to do other things. So anyway, it was great to see it. Julie and Susan, the gardeners, had identified lots of the more unusual plants, but they had some great questions about what some of the others were and then what to do with them to encourage them or maybe tame them. <laughs> there were some there were some pruning things that um, 
you know, I suggested that I would want to keep this at that height because of such and such, but you know, um, it's not my property anymore. So they have to make their own decisions. I was kind of afraid of becoming, you know, verklempt, emotional, but that really didn't happen. I just sort of toured them around as if I still lived there because it sort of still is my garden. And then I left because, you know, am I stating the obvious? I don't live there anymore. And you know what? It was actually freeing. It's not as tidy as the way I used to keep it, but that absolutely doesn't matter. I mean, especially at this time of year, it's actually probably better to keep it untidy. And it wasn't untidy. It was just, you know, you always see things that like, well, I would have done that, but who cares? This visit just felt like like good closure. I mean, I hope it's not the last time I ever go, but it was good closure. Like you had this garden and it isn't yours anymore. It isn't your view. That's too bad. It isn't your joy. That's too bad. It isn't your identity. That's a tough one for some people. And I had to talk my way through that one because except for the trees and the amazing topography of that little piece of land, I did, I, I made that whole garden. I mean, except for maybe like 10 azaleas. I, it was all me. But you know what else it isn't besides my joy and my view and my identity? It isn't my responsibility. So yeah, I feel pretty good about that little visit. Although, can I tell you, I did sort of like lust after some plants that I left behind. That's just normal. I can go shopping. I'll go shopping. Here's a little update on what I'm doing in my garden here, the little tiny garden. In the front border, which is so sunny, I have cleared away almost all of the Vinca Minor. That's a bed about, I don't know, 10 or 12 feet by three or four feet. And it was Vinca Minor. <laughs> an alien invasive plant. I filled in as many sunny plants as I brought, but I'll be shopping, as previously stated, for natives to fill in the rest. And in the back, the little terrace area is just fine. I mean, it's kind of settled in. I put in blue and white pansies. I sunk some ferns and hostas that we'll see next spring, some other shade-loving things. There's that a stilby that I like so much called chocolate shogun, some colocasias that will probably make it through the winter. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a hot little microclimate. So they're all tucked in and everything's fine, unless, unless I fall victim to some late bulb sales, in which case I'll do a little more digging. The bowling alley garden. For those of you new to the podcast or you don't follow me on Instagram, this area is about 20 yards long and six to 10 feet wide between the house and a five foot retaining wall. And it was grass. Doesn't it sound dreamy? Not really in the horticultural sort of way, but honestly, it's going to be pretty cool. I mean, I'm going to make it pretty. It's going to take a while, but it's also got the potential to be this really hot little microclimate between concrete and brick. So I might be able to really push the bounds of some tropical plants. It doesn't have great light. It only has a few hours of afternoon light, but it also wouldn't have wind, which is part of the problem with some plants. So I don't know. I feel like I'm going to try to keep some things that I don't think would make it, and I won't be terribly surprised if they do make it. I'm just going to experiment. I think I mentioned before that I made a slurry of found moss and yogurt and a little bit of sugar, just like the interweb told me to do, and I painted the concrete wall, and I've been watering it pretty religiously, and I think I may be seeing signs of green on the concrete. I'm hopeful. I mean, it's pretty darn subtle, so I might be projecting... Stay tuned for confirmation of success or failure, which is absolutely a thing in gardening. Well, for me, at least. For all of us, I hope. I mean, I think that's a big part of gardening. So the area had been sodded, you know, this, so this grass bowling alley thing had been sodded just before we moved in. 
and the roots hadn't really taken. So I'm pulling it up like little bits of carpet. And whenever I plant something, I roll up these pieces of sod in my hand inside out so that the soil and the roots are exposed. Picture like a six to 12 inch sod burrito. And I'm using these little sod burritos as bits of mulch to tuck in the new plants that are in the ground. This is a sound process in terms of waste not want not, but let us just say that the look at this time is not an aesthetically pleasing horticultural experience, but you've got to break some eggs to make your cake. So I'm not worried about it. It's going to be good in the end. Hey, but with this change of season, I realize that we are looking hard at this area through four big windows and it's really going to be important to us. Like even to Jeff, when he looks away from the football players on the television screen, which he does. I mean, he's not one of those mouth-breathing gridiron Neanderthals, not by any means, not my Jeff. Most of the time, he's not like that at all. I had some double ball boxwoods about two feet tall that I've situated symmetrically outside of two of the windows, and they make a rather pleasing scene. In fact, as I sit at my little desk, like composing these pearls of wisdom for you, one is like two and a half feet away from my face, and I love it. Boxwood is not the native plant that we hope to attract insects with, but I love boxwood. <laughs> so we actually own the property that's above the concrete wall, and I have yet to climb up there. All I can see are hollies, beauty berries, which are great. There's a camellia. But when winter comes and I'm looking for adventure, I'm going to climb that wall. I'm going to see what's what. I'm going to try to make some sense out of that, even if it only means pruning things back so that we can experience the joy of it again next summer without anything getting too crowded out. I mean, I think it's going to be very, very low maintenance. And that's a good goal, right? Have you brought in some of your plants that you want to overwinter? Don't forget that some of them can be house plants that you attend to weekly in a sunny window, but some of them can just sort of live in stasis in the dark, depending on what they are. Lots of plants do a great job of just being hauled into the garage and re-emerging next spring whenever you feel like pulling them out. Bananas, brugmansias, you know, the trumpet flower, some elephant ears. One time I even did it with a rose. I mean, it wasn't photosynthesizing and it was already in a pot that I didn't feel like emptying. I hauled out the pot next spring thinking, well, I'll replace this rose. And lo and behold, this rose was beginning to leaf out, even in the dark. So as long as things don't get dusty dry, they should survive. Dahlias, if you live far in the north, gingers, eucomus or pineapple lilies. I mean, you can just experiment. Think about it. If you were going to throw a plant away because you didn't have room for it on a sunny windowsill, then why not keep it inside a cool, dark place over the winter if you have space and see if you can coax it back to life in the spring. It's just not a bad thing to try if the alternative is throwing it out. I have a big pot full of old hippie astrum bulbs, you know, amaryllis bulbs. I got this tip from my friend Linda Vodder of Potager Blog. So instead of chucking them out and buying new ones each fall, which I used to do, they're kind of expensive, but they're beautiful and they are difficult to keep and then make them bloom again exactly when you want them. But she had this idea of just throwing all the bulbs together into a big black plastic pot. It's not pretty. And I sort of hid it behind a bush all summer. So it was just strappy foliage, nothing offensive, nothing exciting. Now I've cut back the foliage. I put the pot in my little plant room in the garage, which has no windows. Although I have bought a few plant lights that are directed on other things now. So these hippie astrum, these amaryllis should, if things according to plan, 
break dormancy next spring and throw up some flowers for me, as if they were sitting on the mantle at Christmas time. But I actually think that the schedule of this should be April or May. And again, it's going to be outside. So I'll let you know. Can I just brag on my daughter for a moment? I never thought that she would be a gardener. I mean, she didn't express any interest as a child. She is so much more adventurous than I am in the garden. She has bought for herself five little apple tree whips, and she's going to make one of those step over apple tree fences that I've only ever admired in some fine gardens that I visited in England. So what you do is you train it along a fence and you know, you can step over it if you want, but you just don't let it get any bigger and you let it flower and maybe you get a few apples. It is such a cool idea and I'm really excited to see how this works. She is her mother's daughter in terms of understanding that gardening is experiential and experimental. And she's even less afraid to fail than I am. And I pretty much don't care about failure. I'm, I'm into failure. It is the season for free mulch. Let it fall from your trees, get it off of your lawns, except for maybe chopping it up a little bit to feed them with a light layer. They don't like a heavy layer. And definitely put it on your garden beds. I'm thinking that the smaller leaves of this large crepe myrtle in my backyard will kind of be a really pleasant form of free mulch and will probably break down pretty well next spring and summer. My husband sent me an article that he saw in the USA Today, and the title is, Should I Rake My Leaves This Fall? Experts say it's not always a good idea. So I'm sure you're noticing as a gardener that there is more and more information coming out like this. And the idea behind it is so good because it lets regular people who are not crazy gardeners who don't know as much in on this secret about free mulch in fall. So they talked about all the good parts of it. They talked about how you can tear up your leaves, but they mentioned that when you go to shred your leaves, you're actually shredding a bunch of tiny insects. So it's better than not using leaves at all, but the best thing to do is to just let them fall. Unfortunately, in this article, they devoted a couple of paragraphs with just ridiculous over-concern for maladies that we, even as informed gardeners, can't control and almost always wouldn't even notice. I quote, Leaving your leaves may not always be the best idea if those leaves that fall are diseased. Spores may get tossed in the air, Excuse me, but I think they're getting tossed down through the air to the ground, but whatever. Spores may get tossed in the air and fall on new leaves in spring, causing a decline in a tree's life cycle. So we want to harvest those leaves as quickly as possible to help protect the trees. Then it actually goes on to say something really sensible like, hey, if you think your tree has a disease, call a certified arborist. But the rest, the rest of that information is so stupid. I mean... When leaves fall, who's going to examine each one and think about, oh, hey, so plant pathology, what might be going on? Is this a spore? I mean, I'm an experienced gardener and I choose not to know about any of that stuff. If a plant's not doing well, you know, that's a shopping opportunity. I'm not going to try to fix these things through science. I'm just not a science gal. Anyway, it just makes me crazy when people who are trying to inform others in the best way make it more complicated than it needs to be. There are all kinds of spores out there in nature. And there are no rakes in the woods and anybody deciding which leaves are bad and which leaves are good. I mean, just let your leaves fall. Don't worry about it. And always plant new trees on your property because trees do have lives just like we do. Their lives come to an end just like ours do. Plant new trees as much as you can. Hey, do I sound grumpy? I'm sorry, but imbecility can have that effect on me sometimes. It was a great article ruined by over-concern about spores. Anyway, moving on. 
I don't know about you, but they're having too much rain in New England. I know this because I have small relatives who for six Saturdays in a row haven't been able to play outside. They haven't complained to me about it, but their parents have. Anyway, where I live, there's a drought going on. So if you have a newly planted or very dear to your heart, evergreen, anything, it's a great idea to top the water level up on that kind of plant before we go into freezing temperatures. Evergreen trees and shrubs do not absorb water as well in winter, and yet they continue to photosynthesize. Not as much, but they do a little bit. So they need more water than deciduous plants or herbaceous perennials that just say, yeah, we're just going to peace out until next spring and we don't need much from you. So keep that in mind for anything that's newly planted or particularly precious to you, and that is also evergreen. Water it up. Okay, and one more seasonal tip. It would be extremely difficult to kill a plant by pruning it at the wrong time. And I know that's that's like one of those secrets that you and I have because we're gardeners, like the one about the free mulch in fall. There are some people, I mean, have you ever been asked like, oh my God, I'm afraid I'm going to kill it if I prune it? No, no, actually, it's okay. You can hurt a plant by pruning it at the wrong time, and really we are entering into the only time of year when it's not great to do a hard prune on anything that you really care about because we have enough warm weather left, so any plant upon being cut will say, well, I better grow now because I've been cut, and that new growth will get zapped in the winter, and it could impact more than like just that part of the plant. I've done some damage to boxwoods in that way, and it wasn't pretty. So If you're looking at something that you want to put under the knife, you might just want to wait. If it's a few snips, you're fine. I mean, cut evergreens for your wreaths, you're fine. But if it's a big rejuvenation prune, you might want to wait until the plant is dormant, and that would probably be January in most locations. Okay, I think I've rattled on about gardening for this episode. No, wait, I have one more thing. I also saw an article that talked about the pros and cons of landscape fabric. What? (laughs) There are no pros of land that's landscape fabric is the devil's work it keeps away the weeds for like six months and then you have weeds that you can't pull up because they're stuck in landscape fabric okay enough (laughs) i don't want to get all worked up again Um, i hope you enjoyed this episode even if i got grumpy a couple times if you want to go to lh gardens and take a look at how lazy i am there may or may not be a very short blog post there and if not i'm sorry and i will try to get my act together Also, if you like this podcast, I really appreciate your rating it on Apple and even writing a review for me because it helps me grow the podcast, which is what I want to do. Here's what Who's in the Garden had to say. And I know this is a fellow alum because it's spelled like who, like H-O-O, like Wahoo, like Cavalier, UVA Wahoo Wah. And I want to thank you for writing. And she says, so glad I found this podcast from a fellow UVA alumna gardening in my locale. I look forward to each episode, and I always enjoy the conversations with interesting and knowledgeable guests, referrals for other good podcasts, and of course, hearing what Leslie is up to. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, fellow Wahoo, who's in the garden. I really appreciate your taking the time to write, and I'm even more glad that you like the podcast. Okay, so I am out of a difficult September with a few first-world problems. Ginny's in a better place, I assure you. If you love your dog, you got to say goodbye to them so that they can go on to a better place. Anyway, thank you for your patience with my difficulties. Life is actually very, very, very good. Gardening makes it even better. I am getting into my tiny little garden, and I hope that my podcast can help you get into yours. I'll check back in a couple of weeks.